Okay, we're going to be uh, looking at uh, the book of Acts in chapter 17, uh, which is towards the end of the Bible. The words should appear as well upon the screen. We're going to read from verse 16 uh, in a moment. Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. We'll probably look at this over the next couple of times that I preach. I was, I was just sort of getting into it this week and thinking, oh, there's, there's loads of stuff here. And I thought probably you would appreciate me not speaking for two hours. Um, so maybe we'll split it up over, over a couple of weeks or even three weeks. Um, but uh, we're going to start off today. Acts 17. Uh, we'll read the whole passage, even though we're not really going to focus on a lot of this, a lot of this today. Um, but from 16 to 34, so it reads as, as follows. When Paul was waiting for them in Athens, um, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where um, they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now that which you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the Lord and every world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by hands and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the exact time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he's set a day when he'll judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof to the, of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men believed the follow, became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysimus, Sius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Okay. We're really just going to look at the start of this passage and look at uh, what it was that Paul did and how Paul responded when he found himself in Athens. We, we, if we go back a, a few verses, we find out how Paul's got to Athens. He was in Berea and he was preaching the gospel there, um, but there was a lot of uh, agitation of the crowds, people starting to stir up trouble, and the other believers thought it best to get Paul out of the situation. So um, Silas and Timothy took Paul and, uh, well, no, they didn't actually. Others, Silas and Timothy stayed. Others took Paul to the coast and left him there and took him to Athens. And uh, they left him all on his own. Silas and Timothy were going to join him uh, as soon as possible. 
to continue um, where Paul was wanting to go. So Paul finds himself in Athens all on his own. Um, maybe he could see it as a bit of a holiday break. You know, he'd been working hard, and uh, off he goes to go and visit Athens. He can have a bit of time there, wander around the city, and, uh, and, and just wait for, for, for Silas and, uh, and Timothy to join him. Paul, it was his first time in Athens. In fact, he was the first Christian ever to have visited Athens. Um, but uh, Paul's there in this new city, an amazing city that he would have heard of before because it was famous world round. It was a city of great culture. Um, it was home of the great philosophical thinkers. Um, very multicultural sort of city. Uh, pluralistic society. Many people from different backgrounds. There was much worship of false gods and many different ideas of how life was meant to be lived. And uh, as you see in this passage, a lot of the Athenians and the foreigners just spent all their time talking about the latest ideas. What, well, what, what's this new idea that we've got here? They love just to debate that, to do that, to just get uh, just a, 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 what they probably saw as a very broad view on life. I would say that Athens was very much like our society today in, in many ways. Um, we, have, we are very multicultural. We've got a lot of different ideas which are, are spread around as to how life should be lived. And there's a lot of worship of, of false gods as well. So it's interesting to look at this passage and see how Paul responded to the city, to what he saw, and to what he, how he acted when he was there. Because I believe it can teach us a lot about how we are to live our lives and how we can uh, live out our Christian life in the society and in the culture that we find ourselves in. Now, in all that we're going to look at, it's important, I believe, to, to remember back uh, to, to some of what I, I preached uh, last time. We were looking a few weeks ago at just who we are in Christ. We've already heard a little bit about it today, just from some of the, the words that have been brought. I think some of what Tom brought. Um, that it's not, it's not all about what we do. It's not about us um, doing certain things and being impressive it's about what God does through us. It's about who we are in God. And we looked last time and, and saw that we, uh, in God, have become royalty. And uh, we can carry ourselves as royalty in our situations. So that's kind of a bit of a background to what I'm going to say. It's important not to lose sight of that, because otherwise you could, you could go away thinking, oh man, I've got to do this and do that and do the other. No, I'm, not, I'm not looking at what we've got to do today. We're looking at who we are, how we can be who God has made us to be in our culture and in our society that we live in. So I kind of said, well, Paul was taking a bit of a holiday, and it, it made me think a little bit of, well, how do, how do we respond when we're on holiday? What, especially for myself, I think, you know, because working for the church, um, you can take a holiday, and it's very easy to think, well, this is my break now. I don't have to worry about everything. I'm not going to think about about these things, it's very easy to switch off totally from God and just to, just to kind of embrace the things that are going on. Just take it easy, do the tourist stuff, really. And that brings with it the temptation to get into sin and to engage in some of the practices that other people might uh, have engaged in. I guess Paul could have found himself in that situation. He could have been looking around and just thought, you know, he was an intellectual man, he was well-educated, and he could have just thought, oh, wow, it's time... It's a good time to immerse myself just in some of these other great thinkers, these, these people who, who, just, who just are intellectual. 
I could just embrace that. He could have just wandered around looking at, at the fantastic monuments and just thinking, what amazing, uh, amazing temples that have been built, amazing statues that have been built uh, to, uh, to the different gods, to Zeus uh, and the other gods as well. He could have gone around and just done all of that and just bid his time while he was waiting for Silas and Timothy to come. That's one of the things he could have done. Alternatively, he could have seen the immorality of the place. He could have gone and just thought, oh man, this place is awful. I'm just going to kind of hold myself up in my hotel or wherever he was staying and just stay there and just wait for, for Timothy and Silas to arrive. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be corrupted by this place, so I'm just going to pull right back. Those are the two different things that, that, that he could have reacted like. And I guess there are two reactions that we can have, maybe when we're on holiday, but I would say more pertinently when we're just living our day-to-day life, when we're at work, when we go to school, when we're at university, when we're with our families, when we're just in the places where we're on our own and there's no other Christians there. How are we going to respond to those situations? What is it that we're going, is going to be our reaction It's easy, in one sense, to be a Christian, isn't it, when we're surrounded by other Christians. It's easy to be a Christian when we're worshipping with other Christians at church meetings. It's easy to be a Christian when we're at New Day or somewhere like that and we're, and we're, we're full of the excitement and there's others around us who believe the same as us. But what about when we're on our own? What about when we're in these alien cultures like Paul was in Athens? Well, let's look at these two options that we could have had before looking at a third option, which I believe is there, which is what Paul took. Firstly, we can conform to the environment that we find ourselves in. When we're at work or when we're at school or college or whatever, we can look at the situation around us. We can see how people behave. We can see what sort of philosophies uh, get into people's heads and what sort of worldviews they have, how they live their lives, what sort of they spend their time doing socially. And we can just try and fit in uh, with what others are doing. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to be someone who is, who is on their own. I guess everyone has that inside them somewhat, don't they? You don't want to be the only one who is doing something. You see that in society. That's why people dress similarly uh, in different cultures and they act similarly. They like to have safety in number so that others are kind of affirming their view. And so as a Christian on your own in society, you might, there's a certain temptation and desire just to fit in, just to be like everyone else, to keep your head down. We can get pulled into our culture of, of whatever it might be, whether it's drinking, whether it's secular immoral, sexual immorality, secular immorality, that's good, sexual immorality, whether it's kind of just playing the system when it comes to insurance claims or work expenses and, you know, everyone does it, so you, I'll just go along with that, I don't want to stand out. No one can even know that we're Christians. And I, I believe many Christians can go to work or be in their school places or, or even with their families, and people wouldn't even know that we're Christians. Or if they do, if they are aware of, that, we're, that we're believers, then actually what they, what they would observe with us wouldn't particularly be anything that's going to make them think, oh, I want to find out more. Because there's no difference. You think, well, what's the point in going to church? Why do I need to go to church when so-and-so goes to church, but they don't seem a lot different to me? You know, they're doing the same things that I do. I'm living my life quite happily. Why do I need church? Why do I need God in that? 
So it's not particularly attractive. It doesn't seem to offer anything. If you take this view and just kind of keep your head down and fit in with culture, you'll, uh, you'll find that you might have a lot of non-Christian friends. There might be a number of people who you relate with, you might socialize with uh, after work, you might just spend your time with, you might even live with if you're at university. might have a number of non-Christian friends, but um, maybe even more than Christian friends because you'll feel a bit more comfortable with them maybe because of, of how you're living and you think, well, maybe, maybe other Christians would look at me and not be too happy with what I'm doing. So, so I'm just going to feel a bit more comfortable with these, with these people who don't know God. Um, but in the back of your mind, there'll always be that sense of not wanting to offend. Always be that sense of not wanting to do anything which is going to make them think that you're a little bit weird or that you're a little bit different. So certainly when it comes to coming along to a church meeting, if they ever ask to come along to a church meeting, you, and, or, or they come for a wedding or something like that, it will always be in your mind that, oh, I hope, hope nothing happens to offend them. I hope nothing happens to make them think I'm weird. So if you're sitting here today... Uh, or, or any given Sunday, with someone who's, a, who's not a Christian, who, who's not a believer, who doesn't really know much about God, you might be thinking, I really hope no one prays out in tongues today, because I don't want to have to explain that to them. You know, I, people can sing, that's great. People can pray out, that's fine. But let's not have any of the wacky stuff. Let's not have any of the tongues and interpretation. Let's not have any of the words of knowledge. Let's not have any of that sort of thing, because that's just a little bit weird. And that's going to freak them out. And that's going to make them think I'm like that. And I don't want them to think I'm like that. So let's just hope it all goes nicely. Now, I would say that I was this Christian. And I have tendencies to be this Christian. This is my big temptation, to, to go into this. Okay? And, it, and definitely, a few years ago, I was definitely in that sort of camp. Um, I used to work as an RE teacher um, in a secondary school in Rotherham. Now, you'd think that being an RE teacher kind of sets it up that you might be a Christian, kind of sets it up that you might be different. But I worked very hard at keeping a low profile in that school uh, with the staff. With the, with the pupils, I, I was a bit more honest, because they're pupils, and uh, that's fair enough. Because I'm not too worried about what they think. Well, they didn't think much of me anyway. But the staff, I was a bit more concerned. And so I kind of kept my head down. I just fitted into the culture. Now, they knew I was a Christian, but I kind of played the kind of liberal Christian card. So I, I, to them, if you ask any of them, they would have probably said, and probably would say today if you met them and you, you asked them about me, they would say that I was, yeah, I was a Christian, I went to church, but I didn't really have very strong beliefs. I wasn't a wacky Christian temptation to, to go into this. Okay, and, it, and definitely, a few years ago, I was definitely in that sort of camp. Um, I used to work as an RE teacher um, in a secondary school in Rotherham. Now, you'd think that being an RE teacher kind of sets it up that you might be a Christian, kind of sets it up that you might be different. But I worked very hard at keeping a low profile in that school uh, with the staff. With the, with the pupils, I, I was a bit more honest, because they're pupils, and uh, that's fair enough. Because I'm not too worried about what they think. Well, they didn't think much of me anyway. But the staff, I was a bit more concerned. And so I kind of kept my head down. I just fitted into the culture. Now, they knew I was a Christian, but I kind of played the kind of liberal Christian card. So I, I, to them, if you ask any of them, they would have probably said, and probably would say today if you met them and you, you asked them about me, they would say that I was, yeah, I was a Christian, I went to church, but I didn't really have very strong beliefs. I wasn't a wacky Christian, 
I wasn't a weird Christian. I wasn't someone who, um, who had particularly strong views on something. Because that's, that's what I did. I kept my head down, and I kind of went with the safe ground. And I did that for five years. And I went home, and I kind of felt bad about it all the time. But I couldn't change. Because once you started it, I thought, how do I, how do I suddenly say, by the way, I'm a raving evangelical charismatic. Hey! <laughs> So, you know, it, it kind of helped. The church was called Walkley Baptist Church at the time. So I was a Baptist. I, I didn't mention New Frontiers or anything like that. Or, so that, that's who I was to those people. Because that, is, that was the easy way for me. That's one option, isn't it? That's one option it's very easy to get into when we're in a culture that is, is totally alien to ours and we're on our own. The other option is to retreat and hide out as much as possible. Uh, I believe many Christians do this. Uh, Many Christians will know what they believe and they're firmly committed to God. They're a lot more honest about who they are in themselves than I ever was in those days. And uh, they think, you know, I don't want to be untrue to who I am. I've got to be honest to who I am, so I'm I'm not going to compromise. And therefore, I'm going to steer away from from these people who who are living godless lives. I'm going to keep as far away from them as possible. I'm going to have the minimum amount to do as possible with them. So I'm not going to socialize with them. If, the, if, the, if they're thinking of having an, an evening out, going down the pub, well, I'm not going to go because they're going to be drinking and there's going to be sort of uh, some of the joking I'm not going to feel comfortable with. Uh, so I'm just going to say no. So I'll go and I'll do my job. Uh, I'll go to school and do my lessons or whatever it might be, but I'm going to do the bare minimum. And once I've done that, I'm going to come right back and I'm going to go back into my Christian family or Christian friendships, a Christian household and my church group, and that's where I can express who I am. That's where I can be totally safe. That's where I can... No one's going to judge me for who I am, so I'm I'm just going to do that. Um, If you've got that sort of viewpoint, if if you take that thing, then... As I say, you'll never socialize with people. You'll never really develop friendships with people who aren't Christians. Um, People often will know that you are a Christian. They will know that you're a Christian. But they're not going to be too impressed with you, though. Because they might see you as a bit aloof. They might see you as a bit of a killjoy, a bit of oppressive, always disapproving of people. Oh, you know, someone says something and you're always there, t- they're always there tutting in the corner or disapproving. Or someone says something and they, and they make a point of getting up and walking out at that point because the conversation's taken a certain turn. So they, they're going to make, well, did you see that? They made a huge show of that. Um, you'll find that this sort of Christian doesn't really have many non-Christian friends at all, if any. So if something like Alpha's mentioned, they'll, they'll be, you'll be thinking, you know, how can I invite anyone to Alpha? I don't know anyone. I don't have any non-Christian friends. I don't really know any non-Christians because I spend my whole time with, with Christians. And, uh, you know, it just seems a bit of a weird thing. How, how do you get to know non-Christians? I don't Because your whole life is just in there and then out as fast as you can. Um, now, the same school that I was at um, 15 years ago was, was another Christian. Um, there, was, there was probably, well, there might have been others who were like me, who no one knew was a Christian. But I knew this guy, he was a Christian. Everyone knew he was a Christian. He wasn't particularly popular with the staff because he did those sort of things. He'd make big points of going out. Now, he's a great guy. He was a very godly guy. I'm not criticizing him in that sense. But the way he was seen 
was not positive by other people. Because, because I'd sit around and hear these comments about him and kind of nod in agreement. <laughs> not too good, really. You know, I used to think these were the only two options. I would, I would be this person and think, man, how, how do you do this? How do you live a Christian life in a non-Christian workplace? How do you do it? Because it seemed to me the only two options were not really being true to who you were and just kind of trying to be deceptive all the time, really, and, and get along with people, or just offending people all the time and people thinking you were some sort of stuck-up, judgmental bigot. And I thought, I don't really want to be either of these two people. But for five years, that's the line I walked. And, I, and I've got to say, in those five years in, in that job, I never found a different way. I always just thought that. I left the job and, it, and nothing changed. There's no sort of happy ending in that story where suddenly I was, I, I, I was sort of a model you know, Christian like Paul was in this. And, and suddenly everyone saw how wonderful Christianity was and then got saved. That didn't happen. I left in this kind of dual role. But I believe there is another way. There is another way that God wants us to walk as a Christian and he's put us in our society. And that is, that's kind of how Paul uh, illustrates it here. Because Paul doesn't hide out and he doesn't just do the tourist thing. He, it says in verse 16, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue and then he goes on and he, he, he ends up talking to this council, uh, the Areopagus, and he's, he's quite bold about, about who he was. Now, in the future weeks, we're going to look at what he said and how he handled this situation and, and just exactly how he, how he walked the line of, of, uh, of winning people to him. So, but we haven't got time to really look at that today. But just in, in broad brushstrokes, this way that God wants us to walk... Um, let's look at a few other verses. Matthew and chapter 5 and verse 13 uh, and 14 tells us that God has placed us in our culture to be salt and light. It says, um, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither the people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. He said they put it on its stand and it gives light in the same, to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine be, before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So Jesus is telling us that we're to be salt and light in the world. I guess he's speaking to those who were like I was, who, who did hide themselves, did hide their light and, and cover it up and probably had lost his saltiness because... Salt is supposed to be a preservative. Salt is supposed to be something which helps society. And, and, you know, I was just going along with everything else. And so I wasn't being salty. And I certainly wasn't showing a light to the world. But God wants us to be salt and light. He wants us to be seen as something different in the world. Not in a negative way, but something that is positive. Salt and light are overwhelmingly positive things. John and chapter 17 and verse 14 Jesus, again, talks about uh, how we act in the world. John 17, verses 14 and 15. Jesus is uh, praying, and he says in verse 14, I've given them your word, these are his followers, engaging in some way. It means knowing a bit about the culture that God's placed us in with, uh, whilst staying distinctive and not being seduced by what it has to offer. So, 
that's what we should be like. Let's look at that a little bit, a little bit more. Firstly, though, it's important to realize that where God has put us in our situation is for purpose. Because I, I believe many of us can, can think, God, where you've put me, it can't be where you want me. This can't be right. This job I'm in, it, it can't be the right job for, for me. I don't feel comfortable in this. This, this, uh, this friendship group, I don't feel that it's right. I, this school, I just feel maybe a different school's the right place. No, God has put us where he has put us for purpose. There's a reason why God has put us there. That doesn't mean God's not going to move us on. doesn't mean we've got to legalistically stay in the position and think, oh, no, I can't apply for another job or anything like that. But it means that whilst we are somewhere... That is where God has put us. Let's not just just be looking to the next thing, to what we think is going to be the better thing. Oh, well, when that happens, you know, like, like with me, when I leave this job, then I'll, then I'll change who I am. Then I'll be, then I'll be a, 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 you know, truly representing who, who I am in God. God has put us there for a purpose. It might not be the most comfortable thing ever. And uh, it might not be that God is clearly blessing us. We see that in Acts chapter 8. We see that the church is persecuted in Acts chapter 8. It says, um, Acts chapter 8, and verse, uh, second half of verse 1, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So not a good situation... This isn't something you could say, praise God, we're being persecuted. No, these are, people are coming and dragging people out of their houses and killing them and uh, putting them in prison. But it says in verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And then it goes on and outlines some of the examples of that. You know, the scattering, the persecution was part of God's plan to reach the world. The church spread far more quickly than if everyone had stayed in Jerusalem. So there's persecution. It's not, you know, it's not something that you think, oh, praise God. But it's part, God uses it for his purposes. God uses the situation that those people found themselves in and the gospel advanced. And so God will use the situations that we find ourselves in too for the gospel to advance. Daniel is another example in the Old Testament. We haven't got time to look in, in detail at this, but Daniel, uh, you read about in the book of Daniel. And um, you quickly see that he was someone who was brought up in privilege, in a privileged situation, knowing God. But then, because of, uh, again, persecution, um, Daniel is taken into Babylon, along with others. And uh, they're carried off into, into Babylon because uh, Babylon's besieged Jerusalem and captured it. So he goes into this culture which is totally alien, away from the culture that he knows, away from other people who know God. He had uh, three other friends with him uh, who, who you might refer to as Shadrach, Meshach and, and Abednego. They were actually the, the Babylonian names for them. Uh, he was, uh, he was actually, they were actually called Hananiah. Um, Mishael and Azaria. Um, but Daniel is with them, but he's in a totally alien environment. Now, how does he respond in that? Does he keep his head down? Well, he didn't, no. 
he didn't just keep his head down. He got on and he rose up to become one of the most influential men in the kingdom. He served the evil Babylonian kings faithfully. Now, you could think, well, this is, this is the equivalent of, of, of going and being captured by, um, you know, so in the past Saddam Hussein or Hitler or someone, some despot like this. And, and you think, well, I'll serve you faithfully. And he, he grew to love them. And you think, well, that's, that's a bit compromising, isn't it? You know, he was even friendly with them. He became a trusted advisor, a key political leader. Now, does that mean he was like I was? Does that mean he was just kind of keeping his head down, being a bit liberal? Yeah, yeah, I was, I, I was one of those Jews. I was one of God's people, but, you know, I wasn't one of the extreme ones. I wasn't one of the ones who took it too seriously. I can quite easily fit in with this Babylonian culture. No. He wasn't actually like that, because as we read through the book of Daniel in uh, the first chapter and then through some of the other chapters, we see that Daniel refuses to bow down to the false gods and idols which are set up there. In in chapter 1, you see, he refuses to eat the king's food, the certain food which is being given, which to a Jew is unclean. And Daniel doesn't just go along with it. He says, well, you know, I'm not going to eat this. And the officials are saying, well... You know, he's going to be spotted. And Daniel's saying, look, I'm going to trust God. You just give me vegetables and you just see, I'll be as strong and healthy as anyone else. So he doesn't compromise. He doesn't compromise who he is. He doesn't compromise what he believes. He doesn't bow down to these false gods and idols. He refuses to acknowledge the name which is given to him. He was given a Babylonian name as well, Belteshazzar. But he says, I'm not going to call myself that. Because if I call myself Belteshazzar, that's, that's allowing Babylonia to define who I am. That's allowing them to say who I am. And that's not who I am. I am Daniel. I am a, an Israelite. I am a child of God. <coughs> he didn't compromise. He preferred death by lion mauling to going and violating his conscience and what the scriptures said. He made a stand. So was he like this other teacher that no one actually really respected? Well, no. He walked the line. He was recognized as a skilled and capable man who continually attributed everything that he did and all the skills that he had to God. And eventually, the king came to see that as well. Eventually, the king acknowledged that and said, okay, we will worship your God. Because you have shown that your God is true. And you have shown that all, this, all that you have and all that you are in your character comes from your relationship with this God. There was a change. There was a change in the king because Daniel was salt and light. Daniel didn't compromise who he was. Daniel didn't just go along with the crowd. But neither did he, did he just alienate people. He served faithfully. He did a good job. He worked as hard as he could. And I believe we too must be wise and faithful and fruitful like Daniel. So the gospel can take root in our Babylonian soil. We are Christians. The word Christian means little Christ. And so our primary example in all of this, of course, is Jesus. And so what was Jesus like? Was Jesus all kind of liberal and soft on sin? Did he come down and just say, I want to win over the world. I want to rescue, come to sinners. So I'm not, I'm not actually going to mention that they're sinners. 
I'm just going to you know, brush over that. I'm going to hang out with them and just kind of do the things that they do. That's cool. No, he didn't do that. He wasn't soft on sin. He was, he was clear. He kept the line. He never compromised. But neither did he alienate sinners and just win over the religious leaders. In fact, the religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the ones who really hated him. They ended up killing him. Because to them, he wasn't towing the religious line. To them, he was hanging around with people who were undesirable. You know, spending his time with people who were, who were just, uh, who, who, who were maybe prostitutes or, or, or loose women or, or con men like Matthew or others. You know, he was seen as being a glutton and a drunkard. People accused him of that because he, he went around to parties all the time and, and he hung out with people and he enjoyed himself and he had a laugh. And, you know, people were just like, the religious people were just thinking, who are you? You, you don't fit in with us at all. But he didn't just compromise. That was guilt by association. Jesus never sinned. He was sinless. But he certainly wasn't a dull person to be around. No one, if they read the scriptures, could accuse Jesus of being dull. The first miracle that he ever did was at a wedding. This sort of days-long feast where people are feasting and drinking and celebrating this marriage and Jesus is there, and the wine runs out. Now, he doesn't come all high and mighty. Oh, they shouldn't have been drinking so much in the first place, should they? What's all that about? He doesn't do that. He takes jars, which are for religious purposes of purification, and he says, fill them with water, but we're not going to use them to purify ourselves. We're not going to use them to repent of any over, um, overindulgence of drinking. We're going to turn this water into wine. The best wine. Hey, party's back on, guys. Come on. Six more jars full. The religious people would have hated him. The, you know, the, the, the irony that he uses these, these religious jars, purification jars, would not have been lost on them. They would have just thought, who does this guy think he is? But he would have been a great guy to have around at a party. You know, after that first one, do you think who's going to be first on the invitation list? Let's get Jesus in. Just put a few jars to the side. Be all right. He was the guy to be around. He he wasn't stuck up. He wasn't thought badly of. He was no prude. And he didn't hurl himself away, did he? Because we know he didn't sin. Yeah, he spent time with God. He was always spending time with God. That was where everything he was came out of. His relationship with God. That was who he was. He didn't compromise on that. Oh, that's not the thing to compromise. When we're relating to people who don't know God, it's a dangerous place to be if we compromise on our relationship with God. Because then we just get sucked in. Then the attractions of the world just take hold. And we're there. We're there in with everyone else. No, our first priority has got to be our relationship with God. And that's what Jesus did. He stuck with God. He went and and spent time with God, praying, seeking him. Heavenly Father, he always, everything he did, came out of that relationship. Yet he did relate to the people in a perfect and loving way. and, And he won many followers to him. So what about us? You know, do we, am I, am I saying just go and spend a lot of time with uh, doing the things that others do? 
you know, spending, immerse ourselves in the culture of the world. Some people would advocate that. Some people would say, you know, you need to be reading as many magazines as you can. You need to be watching as many of the DVDs that other people are watching as you can. You need to be, um, you know, getting involved in everything. Everything that non-Christians would get involved in. Everything that unbelievers would get involved in. So that you understand the culture. Well, I think there's, there's truth in that to a certain extent. To a certain extent. It's good to be aware of what makes people tick. So we can read magazines to find out what pressures there are on teenagers, on teenage girls to wear certain clothes or to act in certain ways. We can see where it's coming from. We can look at things critically. We can see things, uh, we can watch TV programs critically, especially ones that masses of people watch and will talk about. You think, well, why, why is that so popular? Why is that program so popular? Let's watch it. But let's watch it with, not just without any, any reasoning or thinking, but let's watch it critically. Let's see what there is about it. Let's see what we can take out of this. That's what Paul did here in Acts 17. That's what, that's what, that's what Paul was doing. He was engaging in the culture. You know, when he stood up in the Areopagus, he says in verse, 20, in verse 23, you know, I see there's an altar to an unknown God. I'm going to tell you about him. He starts where they're at. He starts with something in their culture that they can relate to. Oh, you will all know about this unknown God. Now, if Paul didn't know about that, he he can't start about that, can he? He then starts quoting people. In verse 28, there's a couple of quotes. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. And he says, we are his offspring. Those quotes were both quotes which were Athenian poetry. Different poets, different eras. Both of them talking about Zeus, the god Zeus. So when you, when you sort of read the, the, the line, in him we live and move and have our being, which we, we readily sing about to God, uh, which, which is right, because it's true, we do, and that's what Paul is saying. Originally, that came from the Athenians who were writing about Zeus, the god Zeus. Now, Paul didn't sort of go, oh, Zeus, you don't want anything to do with that. Oh, everything to do with that is false. Paul's seeing something in their culture which has got some truth in. He's saying, but you're worshipping the wrong person here. It's not Zeus in him we live and move and have our being. It's the God I'm telling you about. But he knows about the culture to be able to talk about it, to be able to open it up. He's engaging people. And so we need to be aware of culture to the extent that we can engage people, that we we can know about it. But we must be aware of the dangers of being seduced by the culture. We're not just involved in culture and in everything that goes on just, just for the sake of it, just for our benefit. We're not just thinking, oh, we're just going to dabble in this and we can kind of use it as an excuse that we're, that we're relating well to people. So we'll do these things because we're, we're relating then. No, that's, that's just not showing any distinction at all. That's just liberalism. That's just, that's just getting involved in sin to some extent. You know, our freedom in Christ doesn't permit us to dance as close to sin as possible without crossing the line. That's not what it's about. I'm not saying get as close to sin as you can, but make sure you don't cross over. Our freedom in Christ is intended to help us to dance as close to sinners as possible by crossing the lines which would separate us from them, the people of God from those God is seeking. It's to bring people over. It's to get as close to sinners as we can, that they may come over to know God. We're not interested in sin. 
We hate sin. God hates sin. Sinners are in sin. The unbelievers, the, the word says, are sinful. We're all sinful before we're rescued in Christ. And so we need to get close to sinners and stay away from sin as much as we can. It's entirely about seeking to win people over, not an excuse to just dabble into the, in the values of the world before we retreat back on a Sunday to our holy huddle. You know, someone said, God won't ask us at the last judgment, did you get a good tan? It's not just about following the ways of the world and the values of the world. You know, we don't need to expose ourselves to sexual content in TV or films in order to be able to relate to people who would, who would have a number of different boyfriends or girlfriends or would be prostitutes or whatever. We don't need to expose ourselves to that to be able to, to relate. We relate by relating to the sinner. We relate by relating to the person. We don't need to go and drink 15 pints a night to be able to relate to the rugby crowd. And TV, you know, there's lots and lots and lots which can just suck us in. And we can find our time just gets taken over by it and other things start taking second place. We are to be what God has called us to be in Matthew 5.14, a city on a hill whose light will not be hidden. We find ways to relate to society and we make that link so that people can come across. And we start where people are like Paul did, but always with the aim of moving people from the deadless, deadness and the lifelessness uh, of the culture to the vibrancy and the life found in Jesus. And the message of Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection must never be watered down, either as a church or as individuals. We must never lose that core message that God brought as we relate in our culture and in our society. We mustn't lose sight of the fact that it's only the gospel which brings a meaning to life. Uh, life for many people is just full of eating and drinking and work and leisure and then bed and sleep and then up again and it's the same old cycle and people do it day after day after day and they never know why and there's no meaning there. Uh, but the gospel brings a meaning to life. It's only the gospel that names sin as it is and says it's awful. It destroys our relationship with God. It destroys our relationship with other people. We do not go soft on what sin is in order to accommodate other people. Because only the gospel shows us the justice then of a God who uh, sends Jesus to die to forgive our sins so we can leave it all behind and move on in the newness of life. It's only a gospel of grace which can transform our life cleansing us from all of our sin and empowering us to live a new victorious life, to have a permanent makeover by God, in other words. People are very into the makeover programs because we all, they all want a makeover. They want a new life. God gives us a perfect makeover and a permanent makeover. It's only the gospel which brings us into a spiritual family, the church, where we find brothers and sisters and love and encouragement. And it's only the gospel that tells us that when we're forgiven and added to God's family, now we can participate with God in his mission to extend his kingdom throughout the earth. You know, once all that has happened, yes, we are strangers and aliens to the world. That's who we are, brothers and sisters. We are strangers and aliens in the world. And 1 Peter 2.11 points out that that means abstaining from the sinful desires um, 
which wage war in our soul. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and aliens in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrong, they may see your good deeds and may glorify God on the day he visits us. So we're strangers and aliens in the world, yet we are living such good lives among the pagans that they may accuse us of all sorts of wrongdoing, but they may see our good deeds and glorify God. That's what we're wanting to do. That's how we live our lives, that people may see our good deeds and not glorify us, but glorify God. We need to be very clear about our mission on this earth. And our mission is primarily to be close to Jesus. To stay close to Jesus in all that we do. And then we'll love what he loves and we'll hate what he hates. We can pursue relationships with those who are lost, but because we're close to Jesus, we're not going to get into that stuff. We're not going to get sucked into the sin, but we're going to connect with them and they're going to see something in us. They're going to see our hard work. They're going to see the fact that we are relating well to people, that we're honouring people as Daniel did. We're friends with people. There's true friendship, true honour, true love and relationship with these people, not just fake. Not just trying to get out as fast as we can. But real love. But they'll see that God in us and glorify God. We can pursue those relationships with people. And we'll learn that avoiding sin isn't about avoiding sinners. Avoiding sin is about sticking close to Jesus. And that's what Paul does. That's what Paul does in Athens. He sees beneath the attraction and the glamour. He's not seduced by it. But because of his love for Jesus, because of that ongoing relationship for Jesus, he feels the distress of thinking, here's a city and no one knows God. So many gods being worshipped and no one knows the true God. And he can't just pull himself back and stay in his hotel. He's got to be out there and he's got to tell the truth. But he relates. He relates to the culture so that people will give God the glory and honour and praise that he was his due. Let's be the same. Let's turn to God, as I say. It's not about doing, it's not about getting things right. It's about knowing who we are in him. It's about knowing we're children of God. It's about knowing that we can walk in relationship with God and walk in our culture that God has put us in, that God will be honoured and glorified in our Athens or in our Babylon or wherever we are.